Cory Doctorow came to Books and Books this week just as his newest work, Choke Point Capitalism, was being released. Cory is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist, and in Choke Point Capitalism, he persuasively argues the deleterious effects of monopoly. As David Sirota says, this book is an absolute must-read for anyone who senses that the predominant economic mythology is a lie and who is ready to finally start fixing the problem. And in one of the best author blurbs ever, Margaret Atwood writes, Choke Point Capitalism tells us how the vampires crash the party and provides protective garlic. On this edition of The Literary Life, we join Cory Doctorow speaking in front of a live audience at our Carl Gables store. I'm a recovering bookseller. I want to remind you all of how lucky you are to live in a city with uh, amazing independent bookstores. That is not a thing everyone in every city gets. Thank you for coming to this one and helping to support it. Uh, as someone who really loves these bookstores, I also feel like an honorary South Floridian in that my grandparents are Toronto snowbirds and I spent every Christmas at Cemetery Village in Deerfield Beach. So I, uh, I, I, I feel somewhat at home here uh, and I've just found two Carl Hyacin novels I'd never heard of. So I'm, I'm very, very excited. I, um, I write when I'm anxious and so I have seven more books in production because it's been a tough couple, three years. So I hope to see you in the years to come. So, uh, I, uh, I wrote this book, uh, Choke Point Capitalism. I wrote it with my colleague, Rebecca Giblin. She's a wonderful copyright expert from the University of Melbourne. Uh, we wrote it remotely during the lockdown uh, over Zoom conferences and Google Docs collaborations. And, and the impetus for writing it started in the back of a taxi cab in Melbourne when I was there uh, touring with my book, Walk Away, and we did a joint presentation. And it was really about our frustration with the state of the copyright wars. That for, for 40 years, we have watched as copyright has expanded and expanded the duration of copyright, the ease with which copyright can be enforced, the penalties for, for violating copyright, the scope of what could be copyrighted has only expanded over 40 years. The entertainment industry has gotten bigger and more profitable over 40 years, and the share of income going to the creative workers whom the copyright is supposed to protect has gone down and down for 40 years. And we find ourselves in this weird false binary where you have to be on team user and or, or team uh, content, right? Either you're advocating for libraries and for other users of information, kids who want to make mixtapes and, and, and people who want to upload the uh, supercuts to YouTube or whatever, uh, or you're, you're advocating for artists and you have to choose one or the other. And, and um, really, advocating for team user of information has become advocating for team tech because it's the big tech platforms that have given the users of information the power to create new works out of information and share them with other users. And so you end up in this bizarre fight where you have people who side with the YouTubers and the TikTok artists of the world rooting for big tech to win the copyright wars. And you have people who align themselves with the people who uh, uh, are, are signed up to traditional uh, media companies advocating for big content and hoping that they win the copyright wars. And really what all we could see is people cheering on these two giants wrestling with each other in the hopes that whichever one won would, would view their loyalty with enough generosity and thanks that they would dribble a few more crumbs once they won the war. And we thought that that was implausible because these companies typically do not dribble a single crumb more than they actually need to. And, and when we looked at um, what was actually standing in the way of creative laborers getting a larger share of the labor from their work, it had nothing to do with how much copyright they had. Rather, it had to do with the structure of the industry that they were in. That um, whether you were uh, making online videos or whether you were a recording artist or whether you were a streaming recording artist, that your sector was controlled by, by one, two, maybe five companies at the most. And that to do business with those companies, you had to sign away whatever rights you'd gotten under your, your deal from Congress with copyright just to, just to show up on their platform, just to gain access to your audience. And, and we, we dubbed this phenomenon choke point capitalism. On, on the one side of this hourglass-shaped market, you, you've got 
the creators. And on the other side, you've got the audience. And in the middle, you've got this pinch. And at the pinch is a company like YouTube or the four big publishers or the three big record labels or Facebook or the one national book distributor or the one national music uh, theater chain or the three uh, record labels. And as you pass through that pinch, as you pass through that choke point, whatever it is you've been given to protect your rights gets taken away from you as a condition for passing through it. And so when you think of it that way, giving creators more copyright in the hopes that it will get them more money from their labor is like giving your bully kid more lunch money in the hopes that it'll someday buy him lunch, right? It doesn't really matter how much lunch money you give your bullied kid. The bullies are going to take that too. Uh, in fact, even if the bullies go out and launch a nationwide campaign on behalf of America's hungry school children to get them more lunch money, it's still not going to help. In fact, once the bullies have enough lunch money, they're going to pay off the principal. And so we need to do something that gets the bullies out of the school year. To do something that affects a structural change, right? Not just a right that you can nominally exercise, but a right that you can practically exercise, a way to shift value from one side of the ledger to the other, from the side of the ledger belonging to large corporations to the side of the ledger belonging to the workers who produce the material that those large corporations sell and market and distribute. So as we, as we kind of worked through this, we noticed something funny, that while there had been a point early on in the Napster Wars when the record labels were clearly the villains of the story. After all, those were the companies that had done deals with the Beatles where for every LP they sold, they got one cent, but not the whole cent. 15% of it was retained for a marketing expense. And then they had to share the remaining 85% uh, of a penny four ways after paying their manager uh, the, his 10%. Those labels were clearly in the wrong, right? There were uh, already we were in the era of digital sales, and those labels were extracting a, a line item off of every royalty statement that every artist who had a record deal was getting uh, for breakage. Now, breakage is a line item on royalty statements that dates back to when shellac records used to break in the truck between the factory and the record store. And they were taking it out of artists' um, uh, royalties for their MP3s, right? So that if, if you're an accountant, you may know that the generally accepted uh, accounting practice, the GAP name for that line item is, fuck you, that's why, right? <laughs> And so it was very clear that these guys were the bad guys. Now, Napster may not have been the good guys. I mean, they, they were just, they were moving fast and breaking things. But there were companies like YouTube coming along and other companies that were providing ways for musicians to directly reach their audiences and that were offering them a better deal. But that as time went by, companies like YouTube were able to extinguish all of their competitors, become the only game in town. And then the deal that they offered to the recording artists was functionally equivalent to the deal that the record labels had been offering to them. That it, it wasn't like on the one side you had mustache twirling villains and on the other side you had good natured slobs. You just had on either side people getting what they thought they could get based on the negotiating leverage that they had at the time. You know, it's that like that final scene in Animal Farm, and uh, uh, forgive me for this spoiler for this 70-year-old George Orwell novel, but at the final scene in Animal Farm, the animals who fought a revolution against the men uh, and have been betrayed by their leaders, the pigs, gather around the farmhouse where the pigs are eating with the farmers who they made peace with, and they look from the pigs to the men and the men to the pigs, and they, they can't tell the difference. What's the difference between a YouTube executive and a Warner Music executive these days? They, they both have the same approach to the talent that makes up their work. And so the question is, how do we get to this place? How do we get to this place where the web has turned into five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four? What are the structural factors that produced this, this market where we have three record labels, four major publishers, one major book distributor, one ebook seller? How do we get here? Well, it starts as so many of our terrible stories do with Ronald Reagan. Uh, actually, it starts a little before Reagan. It starts with a, a guy who is kind of Reagan's court sorcerer, a guy named Robert Bork. Um, Robert Bork was a, a noted jurist, although if you've heard of him, you probably know about him because you've heard the term Borked, which uh, it comes down to us from the time that Reagan tried to put him on the Supreme Court and his confirmation hearing went so horribly badly that we now have a, 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 an adjective to describe something that goes very badly. We call it Borked. Uh, Bork had been Nixon's solicitor general. And uh, among his, his many weird and colorful things, he had a weird conspiracy theory about how antitrust law in America was supposed to work. 
So antitrust law in America has the, these, these three foundation laws. There's the Sherman Act, there's the Clayton Act, there's the Federal Trade Commission Act. And the lawmakers who passed these acts were really clear about what they wanted from antitrust in America. Robert Sherman stood on the floor of the Senate in 1890 and said, if we would not allow an, uh, a king to rule over us, we should not allow an autocrat of trade to organize our lives and all the things that are important to it. They all viewed the purpose of, of anti-monopoly regulation to stop companies from gaining so much power that they could control the way that you lived your life not just raise prices on you, obviously that's a thing a monopoly can do that harms you, but also becoming the only player, employer in town, making life worse for everyone who lives in that town, or becoming so important to our political process that they can pollute or do other things that harm all of us with impunity. Um, to be able to distort our lives in ways that make them completely unaccountable, to be the autocrats of trade. Um, you, you may know Andrew Mellon, Carnegie Mellon. Mellon. Uh, Andrew Mellon was the man who owned an element all the aluminum in the world belonged to Andrew Mellon. He was also the secretary of the he got America into like trade deals with, with Chile just so that his company could get the aluminum franchise from Chile. And he used to do random stuff like uh, during the war, he was like, we're not selling aluminum to the aviation industry anymore. No more planes during this war because the price of aluminum is going down. Yes, I'm the secretary of the treasury. Yes, I'm a high government official, but this week, no planes for you, right? So this is the problem with autocrats of trade is they have parochial interests. They want to do things that are good for them and their shareholders, even when it comes at the expense of the rest of us. And sometimes they become the secretary of the treasury. So that's what these guys were motivated by, these, these antitrust uh, uh, legislators who wrote these seminal laws, the Clayton Act, the Sherman Act, the Federal Trade Act, but not according to Robert Bork. Robert Bork said that even if you were, uh, e even though if you read these laws, and, and if you listen to the speeches that were made by the people who passed these laws and the debates that surrounded these laws, even though it's very clear that what these people were worried about is what, what um, antitrust scholars sometimes call harmful dominance, right? Just the problem of a company being big per se and being able to like clobber other people and push people around. That the actual true meaning of antitrust, what they all intended all along, was to only enforce antitrust to the extent that it inflicted harms on consumer welfare. And consumer welfare in this context meant just like prices going up. So Robert Bork said the framers of these laws really actually thought that monopolies were super cool, that they were efficient, that if you would only give these like gods who walk among us like men, like, like little Jeffy Bezos, the, the power to do as they please, the next day you would have same day delivery of all the things in the world, right? We just had to get the hell out of their way and let them get on with making us all better off. And the only thing we had to make sure of is that they didn't raise prices while they're on the way. And, and basically Bork's argument like boiled down to a kind of QAnon reading of these, these uh, laws that like, you know, if you read like alternate words and left the vowels out, you would eventually find that up was down and left was right and black and is white. And Robert Sherman actually did quite like monopolies. And what this had the effect of was converting antitrust from something that was like a team sport, where like if antitrust was hurting your uh, position as a worker, or if antitrust was hurting your position as a small business person, or if antitrust was hurting you because it was distorting the high street in your town, or the politics of your town, or polluting in your town, all those things gave you standing to show up and talk about antitrust. We moved to a world where you could only talk about antitrust if prices were going up. But not just if prices were going up, if prices were going up and you could prove that the reason the prices went up was because a monopoly was making the prices go up. So you may have heard that we have this inflation problem right now. Um, periodically, the people who run the very large companies that make up our economy, like the, the two companies that make all the groceries in your grocery store, Unilever and, and Procter and & Gamble, will like stand up in front of their investors, twirl their mustaches and go like, People think that there's inflation, so we've been able to raise prices. Isn't that great? All of you are getting more profits this year. Um, that's that's uh, the, the thing where you actually have monopolists raising prices because they have market power. They have monopoly. And that's what Robert Bork said you had to enforce against, but you had to prove it. And most of the time, these guys are too smart to trip over their own dicks, right? After 40, 40 years, they're, they're a little bit arrogant about it. But back then, they wouldn't put it in writing. They wouldn't stand up in front of people and say prices have gone up because they have market power. They'd say prices have gone up because there's an oil shock. Prices have gone up because our workers want more money. Prices have gone up because the moon is in Venus. 
And so you had to prove that the prices went up because they had market power. And the only way you could do that is by building a mathematical model. These mathematical models could only built by, be built by Robert Bork and his friends at the University of Chicago. And they became de facto court sorcerers, right? If, if you wanted to do something about antitrust, whereas before you could show up in the court and uh, of, of public opinion and say, this company is abusing its monopoly. Now, when you showed up in the court and stood before the, the wise lawmaker, um, the, the, you could say this company is abusing its monopoly and the court sorcerers, that is a, a University of Chicago trained economist, would drag a goat into the court and slice it open and spread its guts out and look at the steaming guts and rub his chin wisely and say, I don't think the monopoly is the problem here. And if you said, but but I'm looking at the guts of this goat and I think it's fine. I, I think that there's a real problem with monopolies here. The court sorcerer could go, look who thinks that he can interpret the guts of a goat, right? Did you go to the University of Chicago? Do you have an economics degree from there? I, the, goat is, the goat doesn't lie. And so for 40 years, we allowed companies to merge to monopoly uh, every company in every sector has undergone these kinds of mergers. This is how we ended up with one national bookstore, one national book chain, uh, or one national book distributor rather, one national theater chain, and so on. Not just that. Um, uh, two companies make all the beer, two companies make all the spirits. If you wear eyeglasses like me, they were almost certainly made by a company called Luxottica Essilor. They're a company that bought all of their competitors. Uh, uh, the way that they work is um, they bought all the high street merchants, all the stores. So Lens Crafters, uh, Sears Optical, Target Optical, uh, Sunglass Hut, and so on. And then they went to the brands that sold there and they said, if you want to continue selling in Lens Crafters, Sears Optical, Target Optical, and so on, you, uh, you need to sell your company to us. And when they wouldn't sell their company to them, like, like um, not Coach, uh, um, Oakley wouldn't sell to them, they said, fine, you're not for sale in any of the places people buy glasses. A year later, they went and they bought them for pennies on the dollar. They own all... The eyewear brands, they own all the eyewear stores. Essilor, the lens uh, uh, manufacturing part of it, makes more than half the lenses. They also own iMed, which is probably your eyewear insurer. It's the largest one in the world. They've raised the prices of glasses 1,000% in a decade. Right? It doesn't matter what sector you look at. They all look at this, including tech, including entertainment. They all look like this. And they're all building choke points. So when they build these choke points, they, they um, use them to extract more rents from their workers. And typically, they lean hev more heavily on extracting rents for their workers uh, or, or the people who supply them than they do on the people who buy things from them. Luxottica Essilor raised prices uh, tenfold over a decade, but that was a real kind of boiling the frog kind of thing. They did it very slowly in little pieces, with always, always with plausible deniability. They didn't want anyone to be able to say, oh, you're harming consumer welfare. But Antitrust law under Bork's theories says nothing about worker welfare. It says nothing about supplier welfare. If you're Amazon and you have companies that are trying to sell on your platform and you force them into discounts that they can't afford that makes them uh, precarious and eventually pushes them into bankruptcy and then Amazon figures out who their suppliers are and uh, switches their products to being made as Amazon-owned brands, uh, that's fine. The prices went down, efficiency has been realized, everything is fine. And so these companies, they lean on their supply chain. They lean particularly on the most disorganized part of their supply chain, which are individual workers and small independent suppliers. Uh, whenever you have monopoly in a supply chain, you get more monopoly in a supply chain. Think about how the healthcare industry did this. You had pharmaceutical becoming very consolidated. The pharma companies started gouging the hospitals. The hospitals were being charged unsustainable prices for the drugs that they needed for their patients. So they all merged to monopoly so that they could negotiate as a body with the pharmaceutical companies. The pharmaceutical companies and the hospitals now stuck it to the insurance companies. So the insurance companies all merged to monopoly so that they could stick it back to the hospitals. Now you have a concentrated insurance, pharmacy and pharmacy benefit managers and hospitals. And at either end of this, healthcare workers who are getting paid less and working under worse conditions and patients who are paying more and are getting worse healthcare, right? And everyone in between is getting, uh, is maybe fighting amongst each other. But the one thing that they all agree on is that the healthcare workers over here and the patients over there can go fuck themselves, right? They're, they just exist to be extracted from. Same thing happens in the entertainment market. You, the, and you, the people who are consuming the entertainment content, we, the people who are making the entertainment content, um, we are the ones who get the who who have uh, no consolidation, who don't have the ability to act as a body. And so, whenever they lean on, whenever they lean, they lean on us. And typically that takes the form of these very Baroque accounting frauds. And the first half of this book 
is just detailing how these work. And in the finance industry, there's an acronym for this. It's called MIGO, My Eyes Glaze Over. So they build these, these kind of Baroque accounting schemes for taking money out of the pockets of creators. And they're just so complicated that nobody can figure them out. And we unwind them. We, we Chapter by chapter for the first half of the book, we unwind them in a kind of John Oliver jolly way of like, here's how this stuff works. And so, you know, for example, um, the uh, major record labels merged to Monopoly. Uh, there's three major record labels, three major re music publishers. The labels own the publishers. Um, and so when if you want to start a streaming company like Spotify, you need to do a deal with those guys because it's 70% of the recorded music controlled by three companies, right? And 60-some percent of the, of the publishing rights controlled by those three companies as well. And so when Spotify wanted to start up, they went to them, and the labels all took equity stakes, large equity stakes in Spotify. They were co-owners of Spotify, which gave them the ability to structure the way that the streaming market was going to work, structure the way Spotify was going to work. So for one thing, they said to Spotify, we would like a minimum monthly payment, right? We want, a, we want a chunk of money every month. Um, but we want to give you a really good deal. So we're not going to charge you much per stream. In fact, we're going to charge you very, very little per stream. So what that means is that if Spotify has guaranteed, say, Warner, that they're going to get $100 million a month, but the price per stream is very low, it might be that all the Warner streams listened to on Spotify all over the world in a month only add up to $50 million. Well, the other $50 million is unattributed royalty revenue. It's not owed to any particular artist. They can give it to some artists, no artists, one artist. They get to choose, right? It's just theirs to toss around. They also got to structure the royalty payouts so that they were not per user, but per artist. So you probably think that if you listen to an artist that you like all month and you've paid $15 to Spotify, that your $15 minus whatever Spotify takes out of it goes to that artist. It's not how it works. Spotify ranks all the artists on its platform, or the labels rather, rank all the artists on Spotify's platform, and they pay them proportionately. So you might listen to you know, the honey roasted landlords, that high school band that you loved when you were 18 all month and hope that your $15 is going to that, that kid you had a crush on in your sophomore year, but actually all of that money just goes to Kanye West because he had more streams than them, right? So, so you have this. Now, the other thing that the labels were able to extract from Spotify was most favored nation status. So most favored nation status meant that whatever they were getting, nobody else could get more. So when the independent labels that compete with these major labels went to Spotify and said, we would like to do a deal with you uh, to distribute our music, they said, yeah, OK, so the price per stream, it's really low because the price per stream has been negotiated by the big three. So we actually, um, unattributed royalty stuff ended, but it ended when there was a giant data breach of Sony Music that revealed the, the un unattributed royalty scam. So this is the kind of thing that puts us on the scent of what we can do about this. Once people found out about the unattributed royalty scam, it became untenable and the position changed. Now, the labels, because they own giant equity stakes and because they had artificially improved the, the um, cost basis of the inputs to Spotify, they made it cheap for Spotify to get streams, not just their streams, but all label streams because the most favored nation status deal, they made Spotify look way more profitable than they actually would be if they had to negotiate fairly for all of those streams. So when Spotify went public, the shares that they had popped into the billions, right? It became this incredibly lucrative outcome for the labels, but not for the artists, right? That was those those were uh, an equity stake that was owned by the labels. Now I'll, I'll tell you later how it how some of that money is actually going to end up with the artists, but it's it's not because the labels wanted to. It's 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 because Taylor Swift did did a solid for for everybody else. So that's how the first half of the book unrolls. Like one chapter after another, we give we use. Um, the examples from the real world of large tech platforms, large entertainment platforms, and how they uh, arrange things so that artists can't possibly get ahead to describe uh, the shape of choke point markets. But in the second half of the book, we, tr we try to address how you might fix them. Um, we didn't want to write one of those books. We, we heard a call when we were pitching the book. We heard it called a chapter 11 book, where there's 10 chapters explaining why things are really bad. And the 11th chapter is like, we should really do something about this. Why don't we all go vote harder, right? <laughs> what we wanted to do was, was fill the second half of the book with very detailed, shovel-ready structural proposals for fixing this. And they're structural, right? Uh, they're not individual. In fact, 
one of the editors we pitched this to said, I would buy this, but all of the solutions are, are systemic. None of them are individual, and that's going to bum people out. And we were like, dude, you're so close to getting it, right? Yeah, there's, 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 there's no individual solutions to this for the same reason that like, no matter how diligently you recycle, you're not going to fix climate change, right? These are structural problems that have structural answers. And the thing that individuals can start doing is start, uh, can do to fix this is start thinking of themselves as part of a, of a, of a polity, of a group, of a, a power center that can provide countervailing power to excessive buyer power. So I'll tell you about some of the solutions that we, that we walk through in the second half of the book. One is to expand the termination right, which is this very obscure part of copyright, but super important. Uh, in 1976, there's a major update to the Copyright Act. They call it the 76 Act. In the 76 Act, there was originally a, a, a rule that said that after 20 years, after you signed a contract that signs over your copyright, that assignment of copyright terminates and you get the rights back, no matter what. You don't have to do anything. So if your publisher, your label, your studio wants to continue making money from your work, they have to come back to you after 20 years. Now, most works aren't worth anything after 20 years. It's a very, we, we, we have survivor bias, right? We remember, here's a South Florida reference. We remember John D. McDonald, right? We remember, we remember Jimmy Buffett, right? Because these are the tiny minority of works that are still commercially viable after 20 years. But the vast majority of works have no commercial life after 20 years. But for those works that are still uh, doing a sound business after 20 years, chances are that they were produced by creators who sold them at a time when they didn't have much uh, negotiating leverage because most creators who've made it 20 years into their career, uh, 20 years before, were noobs who you know didn't have could couldn't tell anyone that if they didn't like uh, that if they didn't want to pay them more they could go pound sand because the people who they were negotiating with would say great there's the door don't let you in the don't let it hit you in the ass on the way back right think of the Beatles and their one penny a record minus fifteen percent split four ways but only after they paid their manager right so um, after twenty years you get the rights back and you can go back to your original publisher or label or studio and you can say well what are you going to give me now. Or you could just go across the street to someone else and say, what are you going to give me now? So that um, was the original proposal. It got watered down. Now it's 35 years. And um, you have to file a lot of very complicated, hard-to-follow paperwork with the Copyright Office. But you can still do it. And, and creators are doing it. Uh, in fact, um, if you've got a young person in your life who you've, who you've recently bought a Babysitter's Club book for or a Sweet Valley High book for, all the money went straight to the author because those two authors terminated their their uh, transfers, and those works are now being uh, negotiated, the, sold on much more favorable terms than they were able to secure early in their career. First half dozen um, uh, Stephen King novels all terminated because back when Stephen King was starting out, he wasn't Stephen King. He was just Stephen King. And so he couldn't get the kind of money that he can get now. So he's getting a lot more money too. Same with um, uh, Dean Koontz novels. Uh, my favorite one though is George Clinton, uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Uh, Clinton's scumbag manager forged his signature on an assignment of, of his copyrights and then used the money that he got from, his stole, from George Clinton's stolen copyrights to defend himself against George Clinton in court for decades. While George Clinton, you know, toured as he went great, ever, uh, ever older and more frail, you know, to our great advantage, I have seen him several times. He still gives a great show, even if he does most of it sitting down. Uh, but, but uh, you know, boy, that's a terrible deal for him. After decades of fighting this dickhead in court, he was like, you know what? Let's say I did sign you those copyrights 35 years ago. I'm just going to terminate them. George Clinton's the single largest terminator of music copyrights in America. Uh, my my co-author Rebecca uh, did the only major or co-authored the only major study of how termination works in America, the only empirical study where she's done quantitative work on this and and enumerated all the terminations. So we could expand that right. We could make it 20 years. We could make it automatic. We could make it easier. Um, we could clarify the position of collective works, which is a real problem. We could get it into the hands of people who. Um, who, who are alive, right, and who are producing. A lot of the termination rights are, are accruing to heirs and not individuals. The, uh, this is a good one. The heirs of Stan Lee and Steve Didko want to terminate their transfers to Marvel, which means Disney would lose all the Marvel characters. That'd be pretty wild. <laughs> so, but you know what? Like, much as I, I, I'm, I'm like here, um, Michael Jackson eating popcorn gift for this, uh, I, I, 
I want living artists to benefit, right? I mean, I got an heir. I got a 14-year-old kid. I want her to be taken care of. But I don't kid myself that her being taken care of will get us more art or make artists better off, right? We should make living artists better off. We should make it 20 years. So we have a proposal for making it 20 years. Rebecca, who is the leading expert on the problems with termination, she goes through and talks about what's wrong with termination, how to make it easier, right? What, what structural impediments there are to it. Um, we have uh, another uh, uh, proposal in this for Im improved transparency rights. Remember that when there was the Sony leak, suddenly it changed the way that uh, Sony related to uh, its recording artists in, uh, and, and all the other labels in respect of their unattributed royalties. Um, transparency is a, a really big problem in creative art markets. And I'm not like, like kumbaya transparency, like if only we knew what everybody was doing, everything would be fine. But rather like transparency is the necessary precondition for taking action. Because unless you know where the bad thing is happening, you can't show up and make it stop. So um, if you have a royalty arrangement with your uh, publisher, your label, or your studio, your contract probably gives you the right to audit your royalty statements. Um, but if you go to audit your royalty statements, which most of us don't get to do, it's expensive, but you know, I belong to a writer's group. They have a, like a, a lucky draw every year where one member gets to audit their royalty statements at the whole, you know, we all pay for the auditors. Um, you know, if you go and you audit your royalties and you find that you're owed money, which weirdly, the errors always seem to be in the favor of the publisher, the label, or the studio. We uh, reference a study that from the uh, that uh, from the record industry where they went to a, a firm uh, that specializes in auditing record contracts. They had done tens of thousands over decades, and in that time, they had only found one contract, one um, royalty arrangement where there was an error in the favor of the recording artist and all of the other tens of thousands had been in the favor of the, the label, which is like this incredible coincidence and can only be explained by an extremely localized probability storm. But um, the, 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 if you happen to find one of these, these scams where money is owed to you, you can say to them, all right, give me the money you owe me. And they'll say, I think you're mistaken. You're going to have to sue us. And by the way, we have a lot more money than you. But because we're good-natured slobs, tell you what, we will pay you the money that you think uh, we owe you, or maybe on a discount, but you're going to have to sign a non-disclosure agreement first. So you can't go to the other people and say, hey, guess what? That guy stole your money and he's keeping it in that box over there. right? You're, you're not allowed to. And in fact, they burden this more they say that you can't hire an auditor who's already audited them. So uh, uh, you have to use an auditor who doesn't know where they bury the bodies. It's like, it's like the, the, um, the, the murder scene crew shows up at your house and you're like, guys, do me a favor, dig anywhere you want, but not in that corner, okay? Uh, and so this is clearly like not good, right? This is clearly a, a means by which large amounts of money have been transferred from creators to large firms and if only we could resolve this question, we could put lots of money in the pockets of creators. We could make material difference to the lives of creators. So because the market is super concentrated, all of the contracts that relate to royalties are consummated in three, four if you count uh, Tennessee uh, states. Uh, it's New York, California, Washington because of, of Amazon, and then Tennessee if you count Nashville, right? So four states where all these, these deals are, con are, are consummated. Now, contract law is a matter of state law. Each of those states could amend their contract code with a short bill that says uh, con uh, contractual clauses of non-disclosure are not enforceable as against public policy uh, because uh, where, they, where they pertain to royalty uh, 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 statements that involve material omissions or errors that redound to the detriment of the person who is earning the royalties, right? So one short bill, four states, maybe even three, and all of a sudden, millions of dollars would come showering out of all of the entertainment industry sectors, movie, films, recorded books, recorded music, so on, uh, and into the pockets of artists. More money than 40 years of copyright term extensions has produced for artists would come showering out of this machine. Right? We would go from uh, artists advocating for policies that allow them to feel aggrieved, you know, my copyright is being violated and I am angry, to policies that allow artists to put braces on their kids' teeth, pay the rent, and put groceries in their fridge. That, I think, is a much better use of our time as artists advocating for a better world. So I'll give you one last example of how transparency can help us out. Um, uh, some of you may have uh, backed our Kickstarter for our audiobook. 
uh, we had to do our own audiobook for this uh, because we wouldn't sell it on Audible. Audible is Amazon's platform. Uh, um, Amazon uh, owns the largest audiobook platform in the world. They also publish audiobooks. They account for more than, uh, depending on the genre, 90% of the audiobooks sold. Uh, audiobooks are really major now. They're, they account for as much of an artist's living, a, a writer's living, as hardcovers or paperbacks as a category. So hardcovers, paperbacks, audiobooks three really big categories in, in uh, an artist's compensation, writer's compensation. And um, they have a policy that if you sell through Audible, you must allow them to lock it to Amazon's platform forever using a technology called digital rights management. Digital rights management is a kind of encryption that um, makes it impossible for you to take an Audible book and play it on a non-Audible player, a player that Audible hasn't authorized. Uh, under a 1998 law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, it's a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine to give someone a tool to remove that digital rights management. And so what that means is that if you've bought $1,000 worth of Audible books, and I say to you, hey, Audible's kind of giving me the shaft, and I'm going to go over and sell on this platform. Why don't you copy your audiobooks into their app and buy my books over there? You can't. So you have to choose, do you want Corey's audiobooks, or do you want your whole audiobook collection, or do you want to maintain like two separate audiobook libraries and different apps and different stacks, different logins and everything. And so what that means is that every time we, the creators, have sold an audiobook through Audible, Audible has gained more power over us, and the more power they gained over us, the worse they've been able to treat us. And there's a kind of gradient for who gets the who gets the the worst of it first. The people with the le least negotiating leverage, the people who have the least power to say back, uh, answer back. So in this case with Audible, it's independent authors who who use their self-serve platform called ACX, which is the Audible Content Exchange, um, where authors and narrators can come together and produce audiobooks that the authors pay for, or that the author and the narrator split the cost of and recoup through royalties. Uh, the ACX deal locked these to the Amazon platform for seven years. You couldn't sell them anywhere else. And then locked every copy sold to, uh, via Amazon to Amazon forever. And um, they had this uh, incredible deal for people who were Audible monthly subscribers, who paid a monthly fee, which meant that they were unlikely to leave, and which also meant that it didn't matter how many books you got, Amazon wasn't going to get any more money from you, which is that you could return an audiobook, no questions asked after you listen to it, and they give you back your credit. In fact, when you were done listening to it, they would say, hey, you seem not to enjoy that book that you binge listened to. Would you like to return it right now and get another credit and get another book? Now, when they did that, they clawed the, credit, the royalty back from the author. And so authors didn't know this because it wasn't reflected on their royalty statement. With your royalty statement, you just got a number, right? Three copies sold. What you didn't know is that maybe you sold 10 copies and seven of them were returned, one of which you sold six months ago and which the person had listened to six times in the last six months, but then they got to return it and get all the money back. So this was noticed by a, a, an author called Susan May. There was a glitch where Amazon uh, gave, uh, accounted for three weeks worth of returns all at once and people suddenly started to see negative copies sold. They were like, wait a second, I don't know how I could sell a negative copy. That doesn't make any sense. They figured out what was going on. Um, another uh, author on the ACX platform, uh, I believe, I'm blanking your name, I think it's Colleen Cross, who's a, a forensic accountant turned uh, mystery novel who writes books about uh, forensic accountants, went and said, hey, where there's smoke, there's fire. If they're screwing us this way, they're probably screwing us other ways. And she just did a deep dive into the accounting. And her estimate is that there are hundreds of millions of dollars in wage theft from ACX authors from Amazon, right? That they've just stolen fortunes from creators. Right, and then they're going to work their way up the stack. Right, Once they have power over Random House Audio and the other big publishers, they'll, they'll go after them too. But for now, it's these individual uh, atomized ones. Now, they created a campaign, uh, AudibleGate. You can look up the hashtag. They actually got Amazon to start disclosing the, the full figures and to back off from some of their returns policies uh, in favor of the creators. Um, because transparency does make a difference, right? When you actually know what's going on, it makes a difference. So we didn't um, put our audiobook on Audible for obvious reasons. We did a Kickstarter instead. Uh, we raised over $100,000 pre-selling the audiobook and, and also the hardcover and the ebook. And we, we also, we got pages out of Robert Bork's Bananas book and we mounted them in shadow boxes and marked them up with red pens like law professors. Rebecca is a law professor. I, I like pretending to be one. And then we, we sold those to some of our backers too. So we had a really great time with this, with this Kickstarter. And 
None of my books are on Audible except we use the ACX self-serve platform to bundle up the chapter about how Audible steals from authors and put that on Audible as a standalone Audible exclusive audiobook. So this proposes some other solutions, right? Like we could say that creators, copyright holders, can authorize people to remove DRM from their own works, right? That could be a perfectly good amendment to the DMCA, right? If you can allow your customers or agents acting on their behalf, like a rival platform that you've moved your audiobook business to, to authorize the people who bought your works to take them with them to somewhere else. Again, it's one of those structural changes that we can make. So this is a book full of structural changes. A lot of those structural changes involve politicians acting or regulators acting, but they um, are, are all grounded in a theory of change based on solidarity, on, on artists understanding that they have common interests, on creators, on, on audiences understanding that they have common cause with artists that were on the same side, and also understanding that it's not just us, right? That choke point markets exist across all labor markets. All labor markets have started to look like choke point markets. You see this where um, uh, private equity firms corner the market on all the emergency rooms and start to squeeze the doctors and nurses who work there. And you see it in uh, charter schools and you see it in um, uh, private uh, rideshare companies and you see it across the board. You see these choke point markets. Um, uh, Non-compete agreements, which are not enforceable in California, but enforceable in most of the rest of the country, the single most common use of non-compete agreements is against fast food workers. Right, to stop a cashier at Wendy's from becoming a cashier at Burger King for a quarter, an hour more. So these choke points are, are everywhere, and that's bad news, but the good news is it means that we have common cause and we have the makings of a political movement. Because creators aren't enough as a class to get stuff done, at least not at the scale that we need to, have, that we need to do it, but all of us together do. So at the end of the book, we quote uh, a dear friend called uh, James Boyle, who's a copyright professor at Duke. Uh, he runs the Center for the Public Domain with Jennifer Jenkins, great uh, erudite scholar, novelist, raconteur, Scotsman. Uh, and, and Jamie, he talks about the origins of the term ecology. And he says, you know, although ecology was coined in the 30s, it didn't come into common use until the 70s. And before the term ecology was widespread, um, we didn't know that people who cared about owls and people who cared about the ozone layer cared about the same thing. You know, if you're worried about charismatic nocturnal avians and I'm worried about the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere, how are we on the same side? Right? The, the term ecology takes a thousand issues and makes one movement out of them, right? When we understand that monopolies harm us as consumers in society, as workers in society, as citizens in society who are interested in a functional democracy, then we have a movement that extends past the boundaries of whatever trade sector or circumstance you find yourself in, right? Maybe you're angry because of the plight of, of, of authors, but maybe someone else is angry because there used to be 30 professional wrestling leagues and now there's one, it's owned by this rapey Trumpist billionaire. He bought all the other ones or forced them out of business. He reclassified all of his workers as contractors, took away their health insurance, and that's why all the professional wrestlers you grew up watching in the 80s are on GoFundMe begging for pennies so they can die with dignity in their 50s of their work-related injuries. Maybe you're angry about that. Or maybe you're angry because all of shipping is controlled by three cartels who are so big for their britches that no one could tell them that building ships bigger and bigger and bigger, although it realized some economies of scale, would eventually result in one of them getting caught in the Suez Canal, right? Or, or maybe you're angry because all the beer is being made by two companies, or maybe you're angry because four or five companies control all the banks and they're uh, funding the purchasing of all the single family dwellings and uh, watching rents go up and up and up. Or maybe you're angry because all the groceries in your grocery store are owned by two packaged goods companies that are raising prices, or all the oil is controlled by four companies that are raising prices, even though the spot market is going down. All of those things are a reason to be angry, and they're all angry about the same thing, right? It's not owls in the ozone layer. It's ecology. It's monopoly. It's fairness. It's a return to the idea that we should not endure a king nor an autocrat of trade. And so that is the book. Um, and that's the talk. Thank you. And now we'll take your questions. I will endeavor to repeat them. We will call 
first on someone who identifies as a woman or non-binary, and then as someone who identifies as a man or non-binary. And I remind you that a long rambling statement followed by what do you think of that is technically a question, but it's not a good one. Okay. So the question is, how do you write when you're anxious? How do you turn writing when you're anxious into sort of a therapeutic thing? So I, I, uh, I started selling stories when I was a teenager, but I didn't start selling books until I was already in my professional life and spending a lot of time on the road. Um, right after I sold my first novel, I went to work for Electronic Frontier Foundation and became their European director. And I was on the road 27 days a month. I was in 31 countries in three years. I stopped plugging in my fridge because it was costing me 10 bucks a month to keep my ice cubes frozen. Uh, and I had to keep writing. And the key thing that helped me get through that was the realization that while there were some days where um, I felt like I was writing good stuff and some days where I felt like I was writing bad stuff, and while there were some days where I could look at the work after I'd written it and go, that's really good and that's really bad and it needs to be redone, the two weren't correlated. That the way that I felt about the work was related to like, whether I'd had a fight with my girlfriend, whether I'd eaten a good breakfast, how much sleep I'd gotten, whether, you know, people were being mean to me on the internet, but not, not about the objective quality of the work. The objective quality of the work was absolutely unrelated to how I felt about it in the moment. Although some of the work was good and some of the work was bad. And so I eventually was able to cultivate a kind of um, detachment that allowed me to, on the days where I felt like I was writing terribly, say maybe it's terrible and maybe it's great, uh, but the only way to find out is to write it and wait six months. So I just, I'm just going to write it. I'm going to write these words that feel terrible. And I, I, I think a good analogy for it is if you've ever watched that people doing that VR demo where there's the board on the floor, but they wear the headset that makes it look like they're crossing a board between two tall buildings. And they're like, oh, oh, and they really can't avoid the feeling that they're going to fall, but they also know they're not going to fall and they make themselves walk across the board. It's not that I don't feel like I'm writing terrible stuff. I really feel like I'm ter writing terrible stuff. All the feelings that I had when I was writing, when I couldn't write because I felt like it was terrible, all those feelings are, are, are there and with me and present when I'm writing work that feels terrible. But I also know that those feelings are disconnected from the quality of the work and I can just go ahead and do it. And thankfully, I'm dumb enough that it took me 15 years to realize the corollary, which is that on the days where I feel very proud of myself because I'm doing really good work, it might be terrible. Uh, which kind of, you know, it did it did like uh, yuck my yum a little. But but I, you know, I, I thankfully I'd by that point gotten the habit. And then you know, mostly it's just about um, doing it regularly because things that are habits happen every day and they happen with less and less effort. And so. I put in my whatever many words. Right now I'm working on two books, and so I write 500 words a day on each of them. And I do my 500 words every day, five days a week on each of them. And then I stop in the middle of a sentence so I can write three words for free the next day because it's you know how the sentence ends. It's It's got an obvious ending. Uh, you don't have to be uh, um, primed to do it. You just You just sit there and do it. And of course, again, I was like dumb enough that it took me 15 years to realize that if I forgot and finished the sentence, that I could get the same effect by deleting the last half of yesterday's sentence and retyping it. Uh, but now I have a method for that too. I'm quite proud of that one. That's my that's my life hack for you. So do I have any uh, optimism about the FTC making any progress on antitrust issues, even though they're so terribly under-resourced? I do. Uh, and more importantly, I have optimism for the, the whole uh, apparatus of antitrust in America and its allies around the world. So the personnel or policy, uh, the Biden administration made three key appointments at the start of this administration, and that cascaded into a bunch of, of hirings as well. Uh, and those three key appointments were the White House antitrust czar, Tim Wu, who I've known since I was nine years old when he was Timmy Wu, and he shot my dwarf in the back with his crossbow. crossbow. Uh, Tim, Tim coined the term network neutrality. Uh, he's a kind of neo-Brandeisian. He wrote the book, The Curse of Bigness. Uh, he was in the FTC for, for the Obama White House. He's a law professor at, I think, NYU, although it might be Columbia. And, and he's, he's great. He ghost wrote a memo for Biden, the executive order last July on antitrust that identifies 72 specific actions that the um, administration can unilaterally take without any further congressional authorization. They're real deep cuts. It's like 
we can use this like 19th century meatpacking law to do this to Cargill, right? And we can use this railroading law to do that. And it's 72 of them on a timeline. They've hit every mark. They're just working their way through them one after another. In the DOJ, you've got Jonathan Cantor. Uh, Jonathan Cantor is uh, a, an amazing trust buster. Um, he uh, recapitulated the greatest moment of Jim Comey's career. There weren't many of those. Uh, when Comey took over the SDNY, the Southern District of New York, he gathered his prosecutors and he said, who among you has never lost a case? And when the bright kids put their hands up and said, I've never lost a case, he said, you are the chicken shit club because you only pick on people who can't defend themselves. We're going to go after the people who do the most harm and we're going to lose cases because we're going we're to shoot for the, for the moon here. And that is what Jonathan Cantor said on his first day on the job. And he's going at it hammer and tongs. Lena Khan is the chair of the FTC, and she is a modern hero. Uh, she, uh, six years ago now, was a third-year Yale law student. And she wrote a paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox for the Yale Law Review that was a rebuttal of, of Robert Bork's The Antitrust Paradox, the book that we cut up and marked up with red pens and put in our shadow box, that uh, turned the antitrust establishment on its ear. Uh, five years later, this former third year law student was the chair of the FTC. She has made a string of excellent appointments. She has appointed in particular very good technical staff. Her CTO and deputy CTO are amazing. Um, and she's enacted uh, immediate uh, act uh, uh, um, administrative actions like merger scrutiny that is going to prevent the further consolidation while uh, pursuing issues on privacy and so on, even though they're under-resourced. And the fact that they're under-resourced is bad, but it's not as bad as it could be because this is not unique to the United States. There is a huge antitrust movement in Europe and in the United Kingdom and in Australia and in Canada, and they're all collaborating. They're all collaborating in the teeth of the lawmakers who oversee them. So in the United Kingdom, the Competition and Markets Authority has a digital markets unit, which is their big, big tech antitrust unit. It's the best resourced antitrust unit in the world. They have 80 full-time engineers, but the secondary legislation that gives them enforcement powers is never passed. All they can do is write reports. So they're writing these totally badass reports on consolidation in ad tech, consolidation in mobile. They're just going at it like one after the other after the other. The European Antitrust Authority at the, at the um, uh, commission, they have tons of enforcement power and no resources. So they're using the reports to go after big tech in Europe, which there is no big tech in Europe. There's just big tech, right? If you do something to big tech in Europe, it redounds all over the world. So they're wise to it, right? There is, there is a, a global feeling of cooperation here. And there is some... Uh, comradely disputes among tact about tactics and uh, where to start, but there is a general feeling of unity that this is a project that um, everyone is working on and that we all have to work on together. It's it's pretty great actually to watch it uh, unroll. How does the how does ownership the shift from uh, ownership to licensing play into the creative industries? So this is a really good point. The um, it used to be that when you bought a thing, when you bought a book. You own the book, right? They, they, there was a time when, if you've ever bought an old used book, it says, like, this book is sold on the condition that it not be lent or resold. It was struck down by the courts because it's yours, right? You bought it, you own it, it's yours. You can't adapt it into a film or, or you know, make an audiobook of it and sell it, but it's your book. You can sell the book. You can give it to a library. You can give it to your kids. You know, it's yours, right? Um, once the book became digital, it became bound by terms of service instead of by the 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 default deal in, in sale. Um, and so those terms of service are, are these like garbage novellas of legalese that run tens of thousands of words at the start of, of every song, every book, every whatever that you buy. No one's ever read them, right? Even the people who, who nominally uh, um, promote them haven't read them. It, it's a weird little dirty inside secret that for the first year, uh, Twitter's terms of service referenced Flickr because they just pasted them and they forgot to do a search and replace. And no one had read them. You may remember there was this point where Billy Bragg went on a crusade against MySpace because he said, Rupert Murdoch has snuck language into the MySpace terms of service that lets him own all the music that musicians are uploading to MySpace. That language was in there. No one snuck it in. They just pasted it from somewhere else. No one knew it was there, right? Once, like, once Billy Bragg made a big deal out of it, they just took it out because they didn't know it was there. They didn't even want it, right? It was... It was this, this completely weird, like, self-perpetuating virus. 
Now, this this licensing deal, hypothetically, could be a good deal for creators, at least if you don't care about there being a good deal for your audience, because the licensing deal can be infinitely subdivided, right? You think you've bought the book, but you haven't. You've only licensed it for a year, or you've licensed the right to read it on Wednesdays, or you've licensed the right to read it while standing on one leg, and if you want to buy the, the two-legged right, then you've got to pay extra, right? And you see this with, like, media where you you bought a movie and you take your phone into another country on holiday and it says, sorry, this movie that you bought, that you've downloaded to your phone, not even a movie you're streaming, right, that is sitting there on your phone, the player says, I'm sorry, I've just figured out where you are and you can't watch this movie, right? Or, or um, you know, you, you, you buy a, a movie, a Christmas movie, and it won't play during Christmas. You have to pay extra to play it at Christmas. It'll, it only plays when it's not Christmas, you know. So hypothetically, this could be good for creators, but because uh, the um, firms are so large, and, and it's really you have to be a large firm to impose these kinds of terms because otherwise people would tell you to pound sand, um, the creators are signing away all those rights to the firms. And so they're not sharing in the benefit of it. And I think, and I would I would hope that most creators would not want to, that, the, that there would be this idea. I mean, as a creator, you know, if you're a novelist, the idea that your books don't belong to you, you know, is, is crazy, right? There is no novelist who wants to live in a world where the books that you've read aren't yours, right? The books that you've gone out and bought aren't yours. No novelist wants to live in a world without used books. I mean, or libraries. That's, that's just not, like, none of us could be novelists without that, right? The idea that you could be a musician, but you couldn't own the music, you know, which is a thing that we're rapidly approaching now with streaming, right? Where the music that you like is there one day and gone the next. It, it disappears and reappears in the catalog. And it reminds me of, uh, in the early 90s, Bruce Sterling, uh, the science fiction writer, went and gave a talk at the Game Developers Conference, which is the big annual conference for game developers, and he said, you're the only art form without a history because you can't play old Nintendo games. You can't play old Atari games. Now, today you can because of emulators, right? But at the time, he was like, how could you even make a, an industry? How can you make an art form out of this, right? What, how, what would it mean to be a writer who could never go back and read the books that you read when you were younger, when you were coming up and reread them. How could you be a painter if you could never look at a painting after you'd seen it the first time? And, and really, that's the, that is the weird um, collision course that we're on, where everything becomes licensed instead of sold and, and ownership goes away. And then it's even worse when we're not talking about art, right? When we're talking about stuff, because your car is a computer you put your body into. And the software in your car doesn't belong to you, which is why if you resell your Tesla, they take away all the additional features that you bought and make the next person buy them again. So you don't own your Tesla. You license your Tesla. You own the steel, but not the software. And without the software, the steel is just inert. Um, this is the argument John Deere makes about tractors, right? You, farmers can't own their tractors. It's a new kind of tenant farmer. You're not a tenant of your field. You're a tenant of your agricultural implement. Uh, and you can't own it because the software doesn't belong to you. GM told the Copyright Office this in 2017. No one owns their car. The car belongs to GM because the software belongs to GM. That is crazy. And I and and at EFF we're launching a big project on on uh, digital ownership, uh, and we're going to try and address this. We've got a bunch of wedges. I think that a big wedge is going to be uh, divorce courts. I think that when the judge says half the music goes to you and half the music goes to you. And Spotify says, no, I'm sorry, we don't allow sub-licensing, that the judge is going to go like, who do you think you are? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm the judge, right? You're just, you're just the, you're just the company, right? Like, I, I made an order. Follow my order, right? And I, I think we're going to see that. And I think we'll see it maybe in a state law too. So what can audiences do to, to benefit creators or benefit themselves? So I, I think that what, what, is a very limited use is voting with your wallet. I think voting with your wallet under conditions of monopoly is it's it's um, very difficult, right? Shopping your way out of out of monopoly is like recycling your way out of climate change, right? The whole point of monopoly is that you don't get any choices, right? If you if you were to go to your local grocer and fall in love with a brand of oatmeal cookies made by some hipster in a leather apron with a wax mustache and buy those cookies diligently enough either Procter & Gamble or, or Unilever would buy them. And when they did, they would issue a press release saying, we bought this because we know our customers value choice, right? Which is true, right? Any choice except for the choice not to buy things from them. So but shopping with your wallet won't help you. 
Um, as with artists, the only, the, or the most important way that you can become part of a solution is by thinking of yourself as, as not as an individual, but as part of a group. So um, both of the major political tendencies in the US right now have strong antitrust movements within them. Um, I am here for my sins. I'm in Miami speaking at a center-right conference full of people who disagree with me about almost everything economics, economical, except that we should fight monopolies. We um, hope that people who read this book get involved with groups that make sense for them to get involved with. If you're an artist, get involved with your artist rights group. If you're uh, in local, if you're in a locality, talk to your library about how they can do work like the kind of work that we discuss in there. Um, most importantly is that whatever sector that you're in, if it's not the arts, that you find ways to demonopolize it, that you work with the people in your sector, the automotive or health or whatever, to talk about the effects of monopoly. We are at this inflection point, right? Where we're Suddenly, like these incredibly like Migo, my eyes glaze over sch schemes about hospital and uh, emergency rooms and um, uh, real estate investment trusts and so on. These are like areas of debate. When that debate comes up in your milieu, in your circle, connect what's going on to monopoly, right? To make sure that people understand that they're, the problem isn't a housing crisis. The problem is a monopoly crisis that has come to the housing market. Who's reporting best on this? I love David Dian's reporting at the American Prospect. He's really good on this. Uh, Matt Stoller has a really good substack about it. Um, and then for books, I would read David Dian's book, Monopolized, and Zephyr Teachout's book, Break Em Up. Uh, Zephyr ran for governor of New York, but didn't win, uh, with, with Tim Wu as her lieutenant governor. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, thank you. They. Uh, there's copies of, of Choke Point Capitalism. Uh, they have uh, my backlist in the other room. There's also lots of other books. Please do support your local bookseller. They've kept staff on late and incurred expense so that we could do this event. So uh, whether it's my book or another one, I hope that you'll support this bookseller. Thank you. Yeah.